guys, if this is your first time, if we haven't met, my name is Andy. Um, I'm the lead pastor here, and what a week, put it mildly. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us here in just a moment. But there's a sobriety to today that I want you to know that I'm, I'm walking in with. Um, sometimes when you're living in a historical moment like the one we're in, you, you, you lose sight of the actual significance of, of, of what's happening. And, you know, with the election season, regardless of wh- who you voted for or how you voted, uh, there's no question that this is the most unique uh, election in the past 100 years of our country. And um, depending on when Jesus returns, we don't actually know. But this is the election that universities will be pointing at and looking at and talking about in, in classes for decades to come. And so I don't want you to think that somehow I'm carrying myself in a manner that, oh, this is easy talk right now. Uh, because people are in all, all over the place on it, which makes this very unique, uh, whether it's social media, whether it's in your church or, or whatnot. But I actually have great news for you. How many of you are actually tired of talking about the election? I have great news for you, because we're not actually talking about the election today. The good news is, is that what we talk about today will have implications on how and if you talk about the election moving forward. Let's pray as we get going. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you are, you're good and that you care for us. You genuinely care for us. You lead us and guide us. You've not forsaken us. God, we look to you this morning, and we ask that you would lead us afresh today. Help our eyes to be open and our hearts to be open and our ears to be open today to you. It's in your name we pray, amen. You know, we should have predicted that some crazy stuff was about to happen when the Cubs won the World Series. I mean, it's like the space-time continuum. Everything just... Everything just went crazy, right? <clears throat> and I just got thinking about the message. We're in, we're in a, a series called Better Together, and I want to remind you of that today. Yeah. We really are better when we're together. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we don't disagree about things, even strongly. But there are things that we can appeal to as brothers and sisters of Christ that anchor us deeper than elections and deeper than who you voted for and deeper than I'm red or I'm blue. There are deeper things that unite us than things that divide us. And we have to become the kind of people, if we're not there already, if you're not there already, who appeal and find hope in those things. You with me this morning? Last week, we, we, we talked about the things that are non-essentials to the Christian faith. Things that we might have strong opinions about. There might even be right and wrong about. But regardless of, of your position on it, it isn't actually 
one of the four legs of Christianity, meaning if for some reason somebody's on the wrong side of it, it does not invalidate them as someone who is a Christian or someone who's trying to pursue Jesus. And it does not invalidate the Christian faith. We call those non-essentials. But there are some things, ladies and gentlemen, that are essential. They're essential to the Christian faith. And more often than not, what we end up doing is fighting endlessly on the things that we can consider non-essential and never fighting for the things that are essential. The things that actually have the capacity to change a whole nation or a country or a city or your family. We leave those alone. And if there's anything to fight for, it's that. That doesn't discount some necessary conversations. I call a conversation, when I take our kids into the restroom and discipline them, we call that a conversation. (laughs) There are conversations that need to happen in God's church and his family. That's reality. But it doesn't change the fact that you can, you can think a certain way and still be trying to follow Jesus. And guess what? I've got great news for you. There's grace for you. There's grace for you. And there's grace for the person that's sitting right next to you. And that should give you great hope today. <clears throat> if you have ever flown in a plane before, most of you have, some of you haven't, There are a lot of gadgets up at the front of that plane that a pilot uses to make sure that he keeps his orientation correct. But before there were all those gadgets and gizmos and dials and compasses and all these things, it actually wasn't uncommon for a pilot to become disoriented. Did you know that? When you're flying through clouds and you've got your head on your pillow and you think it's so beautiful outside and look at the clouds going by, what you don't know is that those things at one point in time could be the end of you because it was very easy for a pilot to become disoriented. It was called, in fact, the technical term was called spatial disorientation. This idea that you can, you lose sight of bearings that give you a sense of up, down, north, south, east, west, and you can feel like you're heading in this direction and actually be heading the opposite way, and you just can't tell. It's disorientation. You get all jacked up, up in the air. It's crazy, isn't it? Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I never want to fly again, but you've experienced this before. You ever been sitting in a car at a traffic stop, at 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 a stoplight? And the car next to you actually, for some reason, begins to back up. But you think it's you that's moving. And you, you, all of a sudden, you, it, it's, you become very disoriented, only to realize when you hit the brakes again that you're not moving. But it feels like you're the one moving. Or if you've ever been on a train, and there's another train next to you, and that train begins to leave, and all of a sudden, your, your body tells you that you're moving, but you're not moving. It's very disorienting. Is it not? So here's the reality that we are in right now. It's very easy 
for us to experience what I like to call spatial disorientation. Meaning you can be in your marriage and and find yourself disoriented as to what's right and wrong, what's up and down, what's north, south, east, and west. People do it all the time. They stop fighting for the things that matter and they bicker over the things that don't and they find themselves disoriented. We do the same things in our parenting. We find our parenting experiencing a sense of disorientation when we stop fighting for the things that have the real value in the heart of your child. Stop bickering over toast and jam and jelly and get after the things that actually matter. We do the same thing with politics. I shouldn't say that any of these things don't matter. They do matter. But understand, there's no, I haven't seen more of a disorienting time as in the past two to three weeks. People don't know up from down right now. There's a tremendous amount of disorientation. And so today, what we are hoping to do is to begin to set and reset some anchors. If you've ever been on a boat that's drifting, you ever tried to eat lunch on a boat before, but you forgot to set the anchor, and all of a sudden you turn and you think, where the heck am I? You've just drifted. You've drifted away. What do you do? You set the anchor so you don't drift away. We call those things essentials. There are things that the founding fathers and the apostles laid into the early Christian church to help us in these very moments. Not drift away. Not to get lost not to get disoriented. Now, most people find themselves beginning to glaze over when we talk of doctrine or we talk of theology. But we're not going to do that this morning, are we? You guys are going to be very excited and passionate about the things that should anchor you more than anything else, that should anchor our church. These are the things moving forward, whether you are 55, 105, or 15. This is the thing, the three and four things that we've got to be willing to fight and contend for. In the 16th century, we saw this begin to play out in the uh, 30 years ward. I mentioned it last week. I'm bringing you up to speed so you're, you're not behind or missing anything, but Uh, One of the German theologians of the time penned something that's become kind of a mantra even still today in 2016. And I'll say it again. It says, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. In all things, love. Don't forget it. Timothy, one of the young men in the church, Jesus died, he rose again, was resurrected, and then the early church began to to form. They began to meet in homes, and they met in synagogues, and they met in pretty much any place they could find. And one of the young men who rose to leadership, his name was Timothy, Timothy, 
Nobody knows it. Okay, you with me? <laughs> First Timothy four sixteen. Paul, it's the apostle of the faith. He writes to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So as we talk about doctrine today, some things that make a great deal of difference in your life, you need to know it's not just information. I want to say that again to you. This is not just about information. We've got to watch what we believe closely because if we don't, it could be someone's soul, even yours, on the line. You've got to watch it and watch it close. And so much of the New Testament is written to help the early church get on track because there's so many things competing for precedent that are jacked up, that are wrong, that are myths, that are lies, or frankly are just dumb. There are dumb things out there, ladies and gentlemen. That people believe. We're not going to get into all that today. <clears throat> Here we go. I'm going to give you three things. I might even give you four. We'll see. If you're lucky. <clears throat> I want to talk about the Bible today. I want to talk about the authority of Scripture today. I'm going to say that one more time. We're going to talk about the authority of Scripture. And here's where I'm going with this, because we've got four legs to this stool. And if this leg was the authority of the Bible, and we removed this leg, we would be in real trouble. Because... The authority of Scripture is the very thing that we put a great deal, in fact, all of the weight on in terms of knowing who Jesus is and how to actually follow him. And yet every single year, especially around Christmas or Easter, there's always news articles trying to discredit the Bible or discredit Scripture. This isn't true. And the reality is that over hundreds of years, it hasn't, it hasn't come to pass, it hasn't been true. And so when we begin this conversation today about anchors in your life, we have to begin and start with this thing that we call the Bible. It's this big dusty thing, oftentimes, that gets left on a shelf and that you, you have to do this to to get all the dust off. You know, or, or it's that app that you have on your phone that you rarely ever open. Uh-oh. I don't preach it. But the reality is that people find themselves wondering if the Bible is something that we can actually trust. I used to. This was something that I had to do a lot of work in. And I'm going to spend as much time in this piece today as I need to. And if that's all we do today and I get to the others next week, that's fine by me. Because we have to settle this as a church for you, for us, and forever moving forward. 
if you move and take a job someplace else or your faith gets dinged or you go through a hard time, what do you turn to? What do you go to for hope? What anchors you in your time of great need? It is good. We don't like the word authority. Nobody does. Well, most people don't. Your kids sure don't. You don't like it with your teachers. You don't like it with your boss. Most people don't like bosses, if you didn't know. Authority isn't something. Oh, and then there's church authority. Without raising your hands, how many people have been in a church, think about yourself, where authority has been abused, where it's been jacked up, where you're constantly reminded about who your spiritual authority is? That's strange. That's weird. And so we find ourselves bent when it comes to this thing that we call authority. And so when we talk about Scripture as being authoritative, we don't like being told how to live and how not to live. But scripture does a great job informing you on how to live your life and how to know and follow Jesus Christ. Well, the question is that we've got to answer is how do we even know what's legit? How do we know that the Bible that God inspired so many thousands of years ago is the Bible that we are reading today? People have this question. If you're on a college campus, it comes out all the time. All that time. So here's what we do. I've got a little example for you today. Anybody ever read the Iliad? Most of you had to do it in some kind of high school, middle school, college class. Now, I have some books here that I borrowed from one of our chiropractic students. You wonder why they're in chiropractic school. It's because I have to carry this stuff around. It's like, this is like 9,000 pounds. And imagine... This is the Iliad for a second. One of the oldest books in in historical antiquity that we have. No one distrusts the validity of the Iliad. You read it in class. It's been translated in just about every language you could possibly imagine. You read it. You have tests on it. You're graded on it. You've learned it, et cetera, et cetera. By now, you've probably forgotten it. But understand, it is the oldest accepted book uh, that we have in in the English, not the English language, but in in historical antiquity. Just to give you an example here, this book is 95% accurate. The first one that we've discovered is from about 900 B.C., it's 2,900 years ago. And what you are reading today is 95% accurate as to how it was written 2,900 years ago. That's crazy. We have over 600 copies of the Iliad that we have found throughout history. And when you line all 600 copies up, The translation accuracy is 95%. There is nothing in in antique literature that even comes close. That is bonkers, okay? And then 
Now, remember this. I know I'm giving you some information here, but this is going to help you as you trust this thing that we call the Bible. 600 copies, 2,900 years old, 95% accurate. The Bible, the Gospels, so to speak. We'll talk just the New Testament for a second. Because we have, in the original Greek, close to 6,000 copies found. Scrolls and papyrus and in jars and in other outside sources where the, where the New Testament has been uh, written and copied. Over 6,000. And then when you, uh, when you throw all of the other copies in, that we have found in ancient literature, in ancient antique historical documents, we have 29,000 copies that we have found of the New Testament. Just the New Testament. We're not even talking the whole Bible yet. Just the New Testament. So imagine this. Imagine you have 600 that you're lining up to check out all of the historical accuracy and the translation accuracy for the Iliad, and it's 95%. You would think with 600 copies that you would find a decent amount of errors over that much time. Now put in your bucket that you found 29,000. 29,000 that you're lining up one after the other, and you're just down the table and around the room, and you're looking to see how the accuracy is of this gospel. And it is 99.5% accurate. 99.5. 29,000 different documents that we have found. And when you, when you study the Old Testament, you begin to find the same ratios. And when you study how they actually translated the scriptures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what you can find and what you can put your teeth into is that the Bible that you have today is the Bible that God intended for you to be reading. It's 99.5% accurate. And guess what that 0.5 is that most people... It's whether or not you spell it theater or theater. <laughs> E-R, R-E, there are things that have changed over time. That is the vast majority of translation difference. It's astounding when we talk about being able to trust the Bible. Now, you may not believe it, but we cannot argue that it is the same passage, it is the same scripture that God gave thousands of years ago. That's indisputable. Whether you want to believe it or not is ultimately up to you. Sure. But we keep on going because in John chapter 5, 39 through 40, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says that you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Meaning when we open this book, this Bible, it's not the scriptures itself that give you life. What does it do? It points you to the one who does. 
His name is Jesus. And when you begin at the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament, you know what it does? It points you forward to the one who is coming, Jesus Christ. And then when you get to the the Gospels, you read the life and narrative of Jesus Christ. And then when you get through the four Gospels and you begin to read the epistles and you read about the life of Jesus, the early church being birthed and, and Jesus giving the Holy Spirit that Jesus' kingdom might truly be established through his church. And then you get to Revelation, which is ultimately about Jesus' return. And so do we have from volume to volume as a book that points you to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so when we begin to doubt or we begin to remove the leg of Scripture as being authoritative, ultimately, especially as it pertains to Jesus Christ, you begin to lose everything that you can stand on as a Christian and as a faith. Are you with me this morning? The authority of Scripture to point us to Jesus is essential. If there's a diminished trust in the Bible, there's a diminished trust in the one the Bible reveals. And so even as we're sitting here this morning... Guys, if I were to end right now and you just left with a nice, nice, some great stats and percentages about translation accuracy and all these other kind of studious type things, that'd be a loss. The win would be that you would be so hungry to know Jesus more that you would actually open your Bible more and that you would read it more and that you would be hungering and thirsting to experience him more and therefore you would get after this amazing thing that we call God's word. Whether it's in your app or whether it's in your actual Bible, I don't care how you do it, but do it. You know who will disciple you and train you and grow you better than me or anybody else? Jesus, the Holy Spirit. That's not to say you don't need good conversations and you don't need good pastoring, but you know what has been amazing is seeing people who have never had a conversation with me or with a staff member or somebody in the church, and suddenly as they're reading the Bible, they feel the conviction of God about something in their life that they know God is putting his finger on. I love that. I love how the Holy Spirit moves and works. I love it. I remember my pastor that that mentored me We had a little life group together back in the day, and he said this to me, and I have never forgotten it, even though at times I've struggled to live by it. He said, Andy, if people really believed in the authority of God's word, and if they really believed that when they opened this, that God was going to point them to Jesus, if they really, truly believe it, would they not get out of bed every morning and run to that favorite chair, run to that place on the couch, run to that place where they could get in to God's word because they knew that when they did, they were gonna be in the presence of God. Not the literal, I opened the book and a light showed up, but that it would point them 
to Jesus Christ. Do we really believe that? Because if we do, it should reignite a hunger in us to know. And this leg that can sometimes become wobbly in the church, and it has been, might I add, the biblical literacy in our country has gone so far below sea level. And we preach to emotions and we, uh, preach, we preach to feelings and, and we have all these devotionals that sometimes we call them Christian devotionals and there's like three words of the Bible in it and it's everybody else's opinion about things. What you need is God's word and what you need is the Holy Spirit moving and breathing and bringing you to the one who can give you life and life more abundantly and that is Jesus Christ. We cannot neglect the essential doctrine of the authority of Scripture in your life and mine. I love talking about the Bible. Come on, baby. All right. We're going to move on. I'd like to move these 9,000 books out of the way, but I'm I'm not going to do that. 9,000 pounds, rather. I mean, this really is astounding. How heavy these are. If you are listening online, I have a stack of books from the Chiropractic Institute down the road that could put anybody to shame. I was actually joking, but hey, praise God. Thank you. You're the man. Philippians 2 says this. So we speak of the deity of Christ. You know what I'm actually going to do? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to save these others for next week. And we're going to apply this further right now. Because when we talk about reading the Bible, oftentimes... We as a church, and maybe it's Western, Western thought, it's become a studious thing, hasn't it? You have these giant Bibles with numbers all over it and verses and commentaries. And so we, we're familiar with the words, study your Bible. And so we, we come at it like, an, like it's academia. And it's no surprise that when we do, what, what happens? You start getting tired Immediately, your brain starts just clouding over. You feel the weight of trying to read the scriptures, and we forget that this is a story about the one who came to save us from our sin and from our brokenness and from our pain. That he, I get the picture, I don't know if you've seen the original Superman anytime recently, but one of my favorite scenes is, is when the train track goes out but the train's coming. And so what does he do? He flies as fast as he can and he lays across the track and he bridges the gap that that train could never have done on its own. 
He makes that bridge possible. And when we read our Bibles and when we get in God's presence, we're reminded of who he really is. And we're reminded of what he has truly done for us. And all of these other things that sometimes we find ourselves fighting about, we lose the essence of what it means to be a Christian. We lose the essence of what it means to be someone who is united with Jesus Christ. And we forget as we attack brothers and we attack sisters what the scriptures actually say about Jesus and what it actually means to follow him. been an emotional week for a lot of reasons. There's going to be emotional weeks that are coming. That's a fact. And those emotions might be anything for you. But understand that what comes before how you feel and even what comes before our emotions and what comes before, maybe even, maybe I should say how we respond to those emotions. What comes before your reactions to that is the reality that you and I call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. And that means first and foremost, more than anything else, before you are, uh, before you are black, before you are white, before you are Republican and before you are Democrat, before you think this and before you think that, you have pledged as a man and woman to be renewed by the Savior of the world who came to die for you, to lay on the tracks, to make a way for you to have a redeemed relationship with your Heavenly Father. That comes first and it informs every single thing that comes after it. That doesn't mean it's easy. But it does mean as someone who follows Jesus and has been filled with the Holy Spirit, that comes first. But one of the only ways I can know and not find myself spatially disoriented as to what God would say to me about how to follow Jesus in the first place is to get in these scriptures. To pour yourself into them. To ask God to reveal himself. You know, one of, one of the most amazing testimonies with Islam right now, with how God is bringing about conversions throughout the world, it's isolated instances where God, Jesus, is showing up in dreams or someone is getting a hold of a Bible and all on their own accord as they're reading it, they are experiencing the power of God to change them. They read the story, they're hearing it, they begin to pray it, and God is changing them. And don't think for one second that that same power 
that raised Jesus from the dead is not available to you and to me. It is. Pray to Jesus and read about him. And let these scriptures point you to follow him in a fresh and deeper way.